I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and this programme from the Archive features an interview I recorded with Roger Luckhurst of Birkbeck College London to find out how the mummy's curse originated. Before museums, there were cabinets of curiosity and people would go and look and gawp and, and be amazed at, at uh, mermaids or evidence of, of unicorn horns, all those sorts of things. And I think the mummy remains actually that object of curiosity. It's an incredibly liminal object, but it remains therefore very uncanny in the sense that it can't ever find a, a resting place, really. It's always stirring in our imagination and therefore stirring at night in the museum. Roger's book on the mummy's curse is not an excuse to retell the familiar story of Howard Carter's discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1923 and the death soon after of his patron Lord Carnarvon in circumstances attributed to the mummy's curse. Roger's real interest is in finding the roots of the curse and excavating the deeper anxieties those may conceal. His research has uncovered forgotten stories of two Victorian gentlemen Thomas Douglas Murray and Walter Herbert Ingram, both of whom were believed to have fallen victim to the curse. And it has taken him into the archives of a secret organisation called the Ghost Club. Roger sees his book as an exploration of what he calls the lumber room of the Victorian exotic unconscious. So how did he start investigating something as nebulous as a rumour? When you read about the curse of Tutankhamun uh, in the press in 1923, they nearly always refer to the curse of Walter Ingram or the curse of Thomas Douglas Murray. And that's, that was the start. So a sense in, in which, OK, so there are two true stories, clearly, that people know and remember. And to my amazement, no one had really done serious research on those two people, who they were. So I started hunting a little bit further. So I went and got his will. I went and looked in various archives because I knew he'd been a lawyer. So I asked lots of archivists in the in, in the inns of court. I eventually got inside the correspondence file archive of the British Museum after a little bit of persuasion uh, and found, to my delight, that there were about 30 letters from Thomas Douglas Murray to uh, the keeper of the Egyptian rooms. In that, he mentions, why not come along to my ghost club? And that led me to the absolute key of the book, which was 5,000 pages of handwritten minutes of the ghost club kept between 1882 and 1936. And Thomas Douglas Murray was the president 
president of that in the 1890s, and lo and behold, there was his voice. There was him narrating this curse, finally. But that took a long time to get to. Now, you mentioned the Ghost Club. Can you say a little bit about what that was? Because it's quite a, it's quite a surprising uh, thing to come across, really, um, men who were prominent in society. What were they doing in this club? Well, of course, the Victorians loved supernatural stories, and also there were a, a large section of very eminent men who did believe firmly that the, that the new um, physics and the new psychology of trance and dreams and uh, the unconscious, as we now call it, were revealing startling new facts which might prove the truth of supernatural beliefs. So it's not uncommon for men of inquiry to, to meet and gather and discuss those things. There are two ghost clubs in the 19th century. There's a famous one in Cambridge, which is still running, um, and Lord Tennyson and, and very eminent scholars belong to that, and they, just, they, they met and discussed in public. But the London Ghost Club was formed deliberately as a very private grouping of people who were really affirmed spiritualists, but didn't necessarily want that to be known in public. So these were men who wanted to avoid ridicule. There was a mention of the Ghost Club in the press in the 1890s, and there was a huge, furious inquiry in the Ghost Club about who had leaked this story, and uh, we must be careful not to um, to subject ourselves to ridicule. Because you had their you know, eminent fellows of the Royal Society, Society, knighthoods, you had military men, you had diplomats, politicians, scholars, uh, and also just uh, men of society who clearly did not want this to be known. So they would meet, usually in a dining uh, club in Great Portland Street in London, once a month during season, obviously. The rules of Ghost Club were you had to tell a true ghost story once a year while you remember. And that's what they did. So they sat down, someone took serious minutes of this because they were a proper research society, so-called, and they did that for 50 years. They eventually had a ladies' night in 1929. How did the Mummy's Curse tale come to be uh, woven into the history of the Ghost Club? Well, it's because, I think, Thomas Douglas Murray, who was this young man who'd been to uh, Egypt in the 1860s, bought this famous mummy case and then suffered this terrible accident of shooting his own arm off whilst hunting. He was someone who clearly uh, knew many people in society. He knew artists, painters, uh, singers, actors, diplomats and imperialists. He was a very strong imperialist, friend of Henry Stanley, the explorer and so on. So he was someone who was very interested in those kind of environments but also became a spiritualist and I think that's the route through. So he is someone who then brings that story. I think he's probably in invited to join the Ghost Club because he bears the physical wound of the curse uh, of the mummy. This is like how more objective can you get if you want a supernatural case of, of, you know, that you can empirically prove. So he is invited to join the club, I think, because of that. And very soon is invited to tell that story. And he tells that story a few times. And, you know, brilliantly, marvellously, when he dies, he's replaced by William Butler Yeats, the poet, who, of course, is introduced to him at a seance. So there is a kind of sense of continuity of, of, of the so-called brother ghosts and that's why Douglas Murray is there I think. I thought it was fascinating the fact that these were these were prominent men these weren't sort of mm. people on the margins of society these were people who held you know responsible mm. positions in society and the book really brings home the extent to which late Victorian culture was permeated by things like spiritualism and you talk later by the time you get to uh, the 20s about post the First World War the, the photo spirit photograph so you might see a photograph of the cenotaph with sort of spectral war dead in the background so 
it takes quite a mental readjustment, doesn't it, to think back to that that sort of view of the the sort of numinous world. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, you have very very eminent men of science who are absolutely breaking the boundaries of the new kind of physics. These are people who are beginning to think that actually uh, models of radiation uh, and invisible uh, rays and so on are going to transform physics, as indeed they did. These are people right on the cutting edge. I love the fact that Oliver Lodge, Sir Oliver Lodge, discovered radio by mistake whilst doing experiments on telepathy and uh, was measuring Hertzian waves, these newfangled invisible waves and so on. So there are lots and lots of very, very eminent men. I mean, I think right at the core of the Ghost Club is someone called Sir William Crookes, and he's a good example of the eminent Victorian scientist and spiritualist. So he was someone who discovered the element of thallium. He was a journalist who ran chemical news, uh, and he also happened to go into seances and try and measure the physical forces of spirits and even photographed spirits uh, in the 1870s to much ridicule. So he then became very silent, very private, very quiet about it. He never lost his belief, but what he did was channel it all into the Ghost Club. So he would go to the Ghost Club in the 1890s at the same time that he was the president of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. These two things are happening absolutely simultaneously. And it seems astounding to us that you can kind of hold these beliefs. But there are many scientists still who have a kind of profound religious faith too who don't see that disjunction. Now one figure who put in an appearance as a guest at the Ghost Club was Ernest Wallace Budge who was for much of the period that your story covers the keeper of the Egyptian rooms at the British Museum and he it seems a fascinating character and really key to a lot of the things that are happening so what kind of role did he play? I mean he's not an Egyptologist in the mould of today's yeah. academic Egyptologist. He's kind of a, an adventurer, freebooting Egyptologist. Absolutely. So Ernest Wallace Budge is, is truly extraordinary figure. He was an illegitimate child, so absolutely really outside society, could never be a gentleman. And yet he showed as a young man immense linguistic promise, to the extent actually that uh, William Gladstone and the proprietor W.H. Smith fund him to go to Cambridge to study ancient languages. So he studied Assyrian and became an expert in, in, in those kind of languages. And it was only later that he then they then suggested that he needed to become an Egyptologist. So phenomenally, as all these Victorians are, learns Egyptology, learns hieroglyphics, uh, able to read Coptic and so on. And he becomes a key figure in the British Museum, not a respectable figure. He is someone who is widely hated in the British Museum for being an upstart, not a gentleman. And actually his behaviour in Egypt was extraordinary. He was open about what we needed to do was plunder, material as much as possible on behalf of the state. So the size of uh, the Egyptian collection in the British Museum triples from 1880 to 1920 during his rule at the British Museum. There are questions asked in Parliament about whether this is really ethical and in fact Arthur Balfour who became the, the Prime Minister said we need him to be doing this. Please do not investigate this any further. We act, we absolutely need this as a as a nation. Wallace Budge was very careful about destroying most of his uh, materials, but there are some that do reveal that he is talking all the time to agents in um, and buyers and illegal traders in Egypt. That's kind of how it was done at that time. It's not. It's. I, I'm not saying that it's. Yeah, he, he's a particularly unethical figure because that's kind of how it was done. And I think his relationship to the whole supernatural stuff is 
is very puzzling and difficult to work out because in public and quite often in private he is exasperated by these stories of mummy curses and he's in, he's wrapped up in in many of these these curse stories nearly always saying I denounce the any kind of supernatural story and yet he clearly believed that this was a very useful story to have circulating in London he wrote books on Egyptian magic he wrote books on uh, the book of the dead and so on and, and many occultists and supernaturalists came to see him and he kind of entertained them and kind of encouraged that story because I think he could see that it was bringing people as it still does to the British Museum making the Egyptian rooms the most popular space in London. And it was clear that that Egypt was a, a mass phenomenon in the 19th century wasn't it? In the 1830s and 40s you can go to public unwrappings of mummies and there's no hint of a curse attaching to that. It's a, it's a spectacle, it's an entertainment. This was a key thing that I, I thought was really interesting and, and, and I, was, I was keen to try and test a hypothesis. My sense was that curse stories uh, about Egyptian mummies came very late in the 19th century and we tend to associate it with, with ancient Egypt but actually it's a later cultural imposition. So Gothic stories about uh, mummy curses are indeed very late. They start uh, 1869. I couldn't find much earlier than that. They have their high point in the 1890s and, and 1900s. So there is a sense then in which there is a different relationship to Egypt early on. In the you know, 1800s, 1810s, there is a sense of the extraordinary sublimity of, of ancient ruins and so on that have been opened up finally to the West because Egypt was quite closed for a long time to the West. A sort of amazement of that, but also a slight disdain of the simplicity or the crudity of their, their culture. It's a kind of Ozymandias experience. That's right, exactly. So, so Ozymandias is all about uh, really Ramesses II and the, and the arrival of that extraordinary uh, sculpture of Ramesses II in the British Museum in the 1810s. So there is a, a, an early kind of sense of uh, a wonder, of sublimity and so on. And then, as you say, in the 1830s, there is this new sense in which the mummy as an object becomes an artefact of interest in itself. Before that... Uh, in the Renaissance period, you would grind up mummies and you would sniff them uh, in, or, or rub them on your skin in order to try and resolve various medical problems. In the 1830s, it becomes an object that, that of fascination in itself and you do get various specialists in so-called unravelling or unwrapping of mummies. Thousands of people would turn up on the Strand, Exeter Hall or at the Royal Institution and you would sit there for hours watching someone begin to unravel the, the mummy bandages. They're interested in what they might find in terms of artefacts that are wrapped into, uh, ritualistically wrapped into the bandages. But then you get these extraordinary descriptions of eminent men with hammers and chisels chiseling away at the uh, bitumen-soaked bandages that they couldn't get off the body. Uh, you know, one report says, you know, after four hours... He he abandoned his attempt uh, and you've got thousands of people here and you th would have thought mm, this feels slightly transgressive but there's no sense of that there's no sense in which these people feel cursed at all they it, it, they're, they're not human beings they are ancient artifacts they're from a different continent therefore they, they're just simply objects of our inquiry so a very very different sense of that and it changes in the 1860s and you use the word cardinal Yes. for that change, which I thought was a lovely word. Tell me a bit about the, the nature of the curdling. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there are various reasons why we might start to think about artefacts from our dominions uh, of empire beginning to change their nature. My sense is, in the 1850s and 1860s, that early 
idealism about empire, the fact that it's a, a, it's a duty, it's a mission, it's a civilizing, uh, enlightening process, begins to, my word is curdle, because of various events. One would be the Indian Mutiny of 1859, which revealed that actually these subject populations were not particularly grateful for us to um, be dominating them in such ways. The other one, I think, which was also crucial, is the 1865 Jamaica Rebellion and the, the actions of the British Army uh, in, a, in a brutal suppression of that um, rebellion too. So there's a sense in which the white man's burden, so-called, becomes heavier and heavier as the 19th century goes on. And mummy curses come out of, I think, the occupation of Egypt in 1882. That's a really significant change when we decide that it's no longer possible to have merely a, a diplomatic, political sphere of influence in Egypt and the Middle East, but we need to physically occupy it with an army. And it becomes very, very difficult, very awkward. Uh, our engagements there are increasingly military and increasingly brutal. And there are several humiliations of British Army too. So in Khartoum in 1885, we lose a famous icon of the Empire, uh, General Gordon. And various people are, uh, famous soldiers are killed during that uh, campaign. Lord Kitchener is, is Lord Kitchener because of his brutal suppression of uh, an Islamic uprising in 1898. He, he is Lord Kitchener of Khartoum because that's where he went and that's where he slaughtered tens of thousands of rebel army for, from the Sudan and uh, Egypt. So there is a kind of sense then it does really curdle and that's what the curse is really talking about, I think. And it is worth saying just in passing that ancient Egyptian culture really didn't operate on curses. It's not as if there's something extant which was really picked up on there. And also the other thing which I thought was very interesting was you, you quote a, a survey in the British Medical Journal which does a cohort study to establish whether there was any correlation between contact with Tutankhamun and death. So on both those grounds it is, it is a manifestation of the Victorian unconscious more than it is actually a, a reality. It's really really complicated I think to talk about the cultural origins of the curse simply because Egypt is this overlaid history of various empires and settlers of, of different kind of belief systems. On the one hand, the ancient Egyptians do have kind of patterns of praise and blame, curse and, uh, and blessing, but never that sort of sense that we have of there is a curse written over the, the entrance to a tomb saying you will die if you enter here. Nothing like that at all. The North African Islamic belief is full of superstitions and anxieties about, quite rightly, about keeping away from dead bodies and tombs. It's normally a good idea to have those sorts of taboos. And especially the idea of the evil eye, and that's what comes up again and again in, in, in these kind of stories. But at the same time, we also have the, the English or the Christian overlay too, which is that sense of being punished by a vicious Old Testament God unto the third or fourth generation. That, so you get those sorts of Christian ideas of, of curses too. And just the straightforward idea that really it's not a good idea to steal somebody else's stuff because it will come back and bite you. That's kind of what it's about too. A sort of, uh, it's a translation of that sort of colonial anxiety, I think. Now tell me about the status of the mummy as an artefact that, as it were, refuses to, to lie down and be an artefact in the same way that a, that a vessel or a, you know, some other, some other man-made thing. I mean, we're talking about human remains here. So what, what makes that particularly, I and mean, perhaps it's self-evident, but what makes that particularly resistant to actually 
settling back nice and neatly into a museum case? That, that's a very good question. I think there are, there are lots and lots of anxieties now about how we should display or should we at all display human remains. I mean, when they were collected up to 1930s, 1940s, there was a sense in which these were purely artefacts for a museum. But I think my sense is that when you transport something from its original environment, it's, it's not an artefact. It's an, it's an object and quite often a sacred object which is uh, animated by very particular kinds of beliefs in the local environment. When you transport it across from the colonial margin to the metropolitan centre, if you like, it becomes an artefact, but it, it never quite, I think human remains particularly, never quite make that transition fully. There is a sense in which they remain curiosities. Before museums, there were cabinets of curiosity and people would go and look and gawp and, uh, and be amazed at, at uh, mermaids or evidence of, of unicorn horns, all those sorts of things. And I think the mummy remains actually that object of curiosity. The museums would like them to be artefacts, and I think they do seriously research them and respect them now as human remains, but also as human remains that can tell us scientific knowledge about the past. But for the rest of us, they remain these fascinating objects of curiosity. It's the space in a museum where you can go and look at dead things, which is something that we are really keen as a species, it seems, to go and do. It's a, it's a very transgressive thing. Kids love it because it's all about uh, a sense of trying to negotiate the boundaries of li life and death, of what might happen before you exist and after you exist. It's an incredibly liminal object, but it remains therefore very uncanny in the sense that it can't ever find a, a resting place, really. It's always stirring in our imagination and therefore stirring at night in the museum and so on, all those sorts of ideas. The, um, the contrast was quite telling in the book between the 1924 British Empire exhibition, which recreated Tutankhamun's tomb, and the reality of the artefacts in the museum. There's something about the reality. I think you, a, chunk of, a chunk of the real thing, I think, is how you put it. It operates in a completely different way, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I mean, I, th I, I think it does. But in 1924, um, there were very, very few people who could get into the actual tomb of Tutankhamun. I mean, you had to be a wealthy person, first, first of all, to travel um, to Egypt. But then also, that tomb is caught up in the rise of uh, Egypt as a newly independent or, or semi-independent state. And actually, the Egyptians were controlling who could go into the tomb at that point, including Egyptologists. So it was a very, very kind of rare space that, that you could get to. So no wonder there was a fascination with the people who got there only to die afterwards. So the mass experience of Tutankhamun, and it's still the case today, is that you see it in recreated forms. I mean, tourists can go into the tomb of Tutankhamun. I've been. Incredibly disappointing. Tiny, small, unfinished tomb. But if you uh, go to any of the exhibitions that travel around the world, it's all about recreating that immersive experience. But it's not the thing itself. It's a kind of imaginative recreation which trades on that sort of sense of spookiness. There's a wonderful quote from Edward Tyler, who wrote in 1871, There seems no human thought so primitive as to have lost its bearing on our own thought, nor so ancient as to have broken its connection with our own life. And I thought that, was kind of, that kind of summed up really something you were saying about however much the curator might want to present a mummy in a particular context, it's still going to kind of escape metaphorically into the imagination beyond that. 
Yeah, I, I, I really like Edward Tylor. He was the first um, professional anthropologist uh, in England. He was given an appointment in, in uh, Oxford uh, right at the end of the 1860s. And he was someone who really saw the duty of anthropology as to stamp out all superstition and yet was increasingly frustrated by the fact that it just kept bouncing back, kept coming back. Really intriguingly, the only field trip that Edward Tylor took, we often call... Um, Victorian anthropologists armchair anthropologists because they never actually got out of their armchair but he did go to the field once but that was to come to Russell Square in London in order to sit with spiritualists and he he wrote up his his notes and it's very much about going into a savage terrain of these primitive beliefs and yet he was put into a trance by one of these mediums and found this incredibly disturbing and, and, and strange. And that sort of narrative is precisely what might tell us about the hopes of Enlightenment thinkers to try and get beyond what they thought of as primitive and actually the continuity of all of those sorts of beliefs. Freud said this too. He was someone who said, you know, we believe that we have superseded all of these primitive beliefs about the fact that the dead can come back to life, that there are ghosts and so on, but just walk around the city streets of any major city and you will see signs for spiritualist seances for magic shows for all these kind of things we still firmly believe it and it just takes one bump in the night for you to all of that to flood back all of your animistic beliefs that we that are supposed to have been suppressed come back and that's really what a mummy does it's a kind of placeholder for that kind of sense of anxiety it's both just an object in a museum but the minute that you have a sort of sense of ambiguity or anxiety about it it becomes a channel for all of those supernatural beliefs now, from the 30s on, there were mummy films, and they, they, they're still shuffling, <laughs> shuffling, <laughs> shuffling on, aren't they? What do you think accounts for the uh, enduring appeal of the mummy in, in popular culture in the 20th century? Well, I think it's still the case that we need liminal figures, liminal kind of uh, symbols for all kinds of cultural work. So we have lots and lots of vampires, we have lots of zombies. I think actually the, the mummy is less popular than those because it's a singular and usually royal aristocratic creature, a bit like the vampire, a bit like Count Dracula. And what's really popular now are those masses of, of zombies who are trying to um, you know, stumble around uh, getting into uh, our houses and so on. And that sort of sense of, of the massification of the undead I think then that the mummy film is actually one of the least interesting of the gothic genres actually which is why I don't say too much about it in the book because I think uh, ironically one of the best films is one of the first so the mummy the universal film from 1932 was scripted by John Balderston who was the first man to see the face of Tutankhamun first westerner to see the face of Tutankhamun because he reported on the opening of the tomb uh, in the 20s and it's a very affecting very brilliant translation of those kind of narratives bit of a curse element much more interested in the romance element that, that goes across time but really it's repeated again and again and again without too much innovation really through through the process b movies are all about the bottom line so something works you repeat it you repeat it you repeat it until it dies and the returns don't uh, the financial returns not the uncanny returns financial returns aren't quite effective enough and then the cycle stops and then someone slightly innovates and they, it starts all over again i've seen very few really innovative mummy films. There are a couple here and there. I'd recommend Bubba Hotep, for example. But really, it's a kind of sense of of like a dying fall. I see it after the after the big moment in the late Victorian Edwardian period. There is a certain sort of Gothic continuity to that, but it's less interesting. I tend to find. 
And in conclusion, Roger, I suppose the running thread of the, the mummy tale is this idea of, of vengeance and return. And the obverse of that, I suppose, is guilt, which, which really ties up to your main theme, doesn't it, of, of these colonial late, late imperial anxieties in, in Victorian England. The two um, precursor cursed stories of, of Victorian gentlemen who were cursed, Thomas Douglas Murray and Walter Ingram, really bring that home. The story of what happened to them really brings that home. And I think there's a very good reason why Walter Ingram was cursed. He was an opportunist soldier. He was a soldier of fortune. He joined any wars in Africa that looked um, quite exciting. He was in Africa, South, South Africa in the Zulu Wars in 1879. He voluntarily joined the um, Gordon Expedition in 1885 in Egypt. And clearly enjoyed being right at the front line, he enjoyed being a lancer, he enjoyed firing those guns into the advancing Arab rebels in uh, Khartoum and so on. So here's someone who is fully invested in that kind of violence, that colonial violence. He dies hunting, that's another kind of aggressive act in Africa. And similarly, Thomas Douglas Murray was supposed to join the army, but unfortunately had his injury before then. But his brothers were in the army, his brothers fought all the way around the world, and he's someone who was very pro-imperialist, who was very interested in the expansion of Africa. He put all of the investments into African imperialism and so on. So these are people who are fully invested in that colonial project. I think that's precisely why they then get a curse attached to them, because it's a story of the legacies and guilt to do with that kind of colonial violence. Roger Luckhurst. His book on the Mummy's Curse is available from Oxford University Press. You can find out more about it on their website. And do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.